Hey guys, before we get going, I do want to plug another charity here for you. If you have the money to help out, I would encourage everybody to go to cdcfoundation.org slash coronavirus. That's where you can get money directly into the hands of the CDC. Uh, I know Facebook recently just did a $10 million match to help that foundation. If you would like to uh, put money toward that very important organization, then please go ahead and do it right now. That is cdcfoundation.org slash coronavirus. This is your hyperbole-free coronavirus update for March 27th. I'm Justin Robert Young. There are now 100,392 cases of the virus in America. 1,543 people have died. The tri-state area of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut still makes up about 42% of total deaths, although there have been recent spikes in both Michigan, which recorded 32 yesterday, and Louisiana, which recorded 36 deaths. The state of Colorado issued a statewide order for citizens to stay at home, effective yesterday, said Governor Jared Paulus. We owe it to ourselves and our fellow Americans in order to save lives. Meanwhile, more Florida counties went into lockdown over the last 48 hours. Broward County is effective today, Hillsborough County the same. Meanwhile, Central Florida counties Orange, Osceola, and Pinellas all went under lockdown yesterday. Charleston, South Carolina is also under a lockdown, along with several counties in Texas, including Brazoria County, Gregg County, Hayes County, Hidalgo County, Nunces County, and Willisee County. Polk and Scurry counties go under lockdown today. And finally, Summit County, a popular skiing and tourism area in the state of Utah, will be on stay-at-home order effective this evening. Lastly, the U.S. House of Representatives has passed and President Donald Trump has signed the historic $2 trillion stimulus package that will put at least $1,200 in the hands of all Americans who made less than $75,000 on their income tax returns last year or the year before. That is your hyperbole-free coronavirus update for March 27th. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics Podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young. I, I, I got to figure out a better way to introduce myself because I say my name is Justin Robert Young during the update. I, I'm leaving this in. Whatever. We're working through it. Everything's going to be a little imperfect for a little bit. We just have to understand. Deep breath. We're going to talk about the Biden accuser. 
we are going to talk about the stimulus package that has now officially passed. We're going to have an interview about what is and is not similar between the situation we're in right now and the Great Depression. But first, a correction. Let it never be said that I will not correct myself because I made a boo-boo. This was actually brought to my attention by somebody in our elite donors uh, society chat. But I said that both McCain and Obama suspended their campaigns in 2008. I was wrong. John McCain suspended his campaign. Obama did not. And when I was reading about this, I remembered I was annoyed that Obama didn't then. (laughs) I don't know. I I mean, that was one of the situations where I think McCain did it and, and the Obama campaign thought that they'd be taking the bait. They would, it would make McCain look like the leader of it. If Obama followed and they really didn't want to highlight the experience thing. And so I guess the Obama team thought this was something that they they couldn't follow on. If they were if they were going to do it, they would have had to lead on it. They didn't lead on it. And so now they just had to go forward. But I remember at the time being a little annoyed then. I, I, I just don't know why, especially in a world where we get nothing but politics. I mean, let me put it like this. It's not necessarily that I feel that it moves me. I just feel that there's unused bandwidth there. I feel like it's a move that we haven't seen a lot. And I stick to my guns. This all came up because I was suggesting that Joe Biden suspend his campaign. Number one, because unlike in 2008, he's already effectively suspended his campaign. He's not doing any events, although he will be on CNN today. I just thought it would be a move for which he could he could gain some leadership points. But, oh well. During that CNN town hall, however, I suspect that Joe Biden will be asked about the following. This came up after I published the episode on Wednesday, but it's been out in the wild for about 48 hours now. A former senatorial aide to Joe Biden in 1993 says she was sexually assaulted by the then senator. This is her description in her own words. If a description of a sexual assault is something that you uh, don't want to hear, I would recommend you skip to the 845 time code of this podcast he just had me up against the wall and the wall was cold and i remember he it happened all at once the gym bag i don't know where it went i handed it to him was gone and then his hands were on me and underneath my clothes and um yeah and then he went oh he went down my skirt but then up inside it and he uh penetrated me with his fingers, whatever. And um, I 
uh, he was kissing me at the same time and he was saying something to me. He said several things and I can't remember everything he said. I remember a couple of things. I remember him saying first, before, like as he was doing it, do you want to go somewhere else? And then him saying to me when I pulled away, he um, got finished doing what he was doing and I kind of was pulled back and he said, he said, come on, man, I heard you liked me. And I um, knew he was angry right after he took his finger. He just like pointed at me and he said, you're nothing to me. That is an excerpt from the Katie Halper show. She is the co-host with Matt Taibbi for Rolling Stone's Useful Idiots podcast. Uh, Tara Reid is the woman that you hear there. She has subsequently spoken to uh, Rising, a show produced by The Hill. Quite simply, this is something that Joe Biden needs to answer for. This is something that people need to ask him about. And obviously, right now, we're in a very topsy-turvy world. We are in a, a, a crazy situation where... There's uh, a lot of things going on. However, it would be journalistic malpractice to not ask Joe Biden about this. Because you have a woman, you have a place, you have a, a, sub, a, a, a date. Like, you've got a lot of things. She's on the record. She says who she is. You can prove that she was uh, on that staff. This woman, Tara Reid, also says that she went to Time's Up, the foundation that was formed after Harvey Weinstein created the Me Too movement, effectively, in terms of uh, all of his victims coming out. Time's Up was there to stop predatory behavior. And after initially agreeing that they would help fund a civil suit, they pulled out. There is similar leadership between Time's Up and the Joe Biden campaign. I don't know any other way to put it than this. He's gotta be asked. Now, does he have to answer immediately today? You know, that would be good, but but his answer to me or 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 where he goes from there, that's his business. I am only focusing on the journalistic side of this, which you know that's always my focus. Journalistically somebody's got to ask. And if CNN doesn't tonight, and I think they will. I actually have faith in CNN on this. I think that they will. They will. It it, it will be a a softball. Well, not a softball because they're asking about it. Hey, did you sexually assault a woman? It'll be it'll be right up at the top, and they are going to say, "I know that this is a coronavirus town hall that we're holding, but this is in the news. We would be remiss if we didn't ask you." And if I were guessing. 
I would say that Biden's response is either going to be, we're aware of the allegation, nothing ever happened, but we will have a further response going forward, or that's all we're going to say on the matter. It never happened. Now, the worst thing that he could do is parrot what some of his supporters are saying right now. Which is that apparently Tara Reid at some point has had a fascination with uh, Russia and Vladimir Putin. And some of his supporters are pushing the idea that she might be a Russian agent. If Biden does that, you will know that the wheels have come off this this entire wagon. Like, <laughs> like that would be bad. This is something where he's got to be asked. I don't expect for him to give much of a substantive answer. But once he's asked, I don't know why this hasn't been covered. I mean, act like there's not a bunch of reporters out here that are sitting in their apartments doing jack. They ain't covering these campaign events. The only reason why outlets would not report on this is quite simply because they want to protect their relationship with Joe Biden. That would be it. Or, and, and to be honest, this may or may not be a reporter thing. Most reporters I know want to ask because there's, you know, for, for no other reason other than like, there's a kind of like competitive adrenaline junkie uh, uh, community when it comes to reporters about asking the thing that nobody else is going to ask. It's where a lot of dumb questions get asked, but also it's, it's a part of the basic psychology of it. The person that's going to stomp on this is the editor. Or the publisher. There might be articles already written that the editor thinks, ah, we need a little bit more. Ah, we ran it up the flagpole. We're not comfortable with running this right now. Go get more. That's a way that you kill a lot of stories. But I think this is, cre- it's it's credible enough to be asked about. That's That's the most even-handed that I can look at it. What do I expect? I expect that the Biden team is going to try and stonewall this until they can't. And at that point, you're going to get the he's too big to stoop down this low, but I'm not kind of either opinion pieces or out and out smears of this woman. And we're going to find out. We're going to find out how much the women are to be believed stuff people really want to play by when it's actually about your skin in the game. All right. I'm going to do this thing. This is my thing. I'm going to do. I, I don't know how to navigate it. Cause to be totally honest, I don't know where the North star is for everybody. Obviously, there's a lot of mixed messaging happening. There's a lot of different uh, uh, thoughts and and everybody's going to be guided by the last thing that they heard about this particular subject. But I'm just going to put this out here. And I do believe that I have been consistent from the late 90s to right now. When I say China's lying. I'm just saying this now that and I feel like Sometimes I'm taking crazy pills because I just feel like we were we we 
Not but a few weeks ago, we were all on the same page when I say... China's lying. Because I honestly, I, I could have sworn that it was only a few weeks ago that we were all talking about the Hong Kong situation. We were talking about a brutal authoritarian regime that was trying to misrepresent their own position and use any and all of their own uh, power and pressure points to affect anybody that got in their way. So much so that Daryl Morey, the GM of the Houston Rockets, uh, lowered his league's salary cap because he dared speak out in solidarity with Hong Kong. I thought we were all on the same page then. I thought that was a turning point in which we would say, hey man, maybe we shouldn't really trust things that come out of the state-run Chinese media and government. But yet here we are. Because the headline that I see yesterday is U.S. leads world in coronavirus cases. And we sure do lead in reported, confirmed coronavirus cases. Among all the the, the, the awfulness that's happening right now, both economically and in terms of our health, at least our testing curve is getting to where it needs to be. We have done a lot of tests. They, they announced 500,000 at the press conference yesterday. It seems to be going up uh, fairly exponentially, considering it was only two days ago that we were caught into a really dumb 12-hour argument about Trump saying that we had done more in eight days than South Korea when really it was probably 14 days that we'd done more. Blah, 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 blah. Dumb. Good. We're doing more. Because guess what? Those are rookie numbers. We had to get those numbers up. Nothing is going to successfully change. The best way we are going to survive this is by ubiquitous, repeated testing. So that's good. We're also a country of 300 million, 330 to be exact. So that means we're going to have a lot of cases, especially since if, God forbid, anybody tries to hide cases in this country, there's going to be reporters that'll leak it. You have to have one person in that office not agree with the fact that, that a number's not being reported for them to send it to a reporter, and now it's going to be public, and the people that tried to hide it are going to get fired. So, this brings me back to my main point. China's lying. According to China, they had 46 new cases yesterday. 46, can you believe it? You want to know where they all came from? Foreigners who traveled inside of China. Sure, Jan. Meanwhile, China shut off all foreign travel. Not from hotspots. Not from certain regions, all of it. Even people who own property in China and legally are allowed to go there as of tomorrow will not be allowed to go. And they just decided to re-shut down all their movie theaters. That kind of seems like a country that's definitely beyond their curve. That's before we get into some of the more 
dubious stuff. And I say dubious not because I don't necessarily believe it. I say dubious because when you are coming from behind a regime that regularly punishes, sometimes lethally, people leaking to the press, then you just don't know. It doesn't exactly come from like a non-governmental organization stationed in China that the government can be mad at. It is like one-to-one leaking. And so when I tell you that an anti-communist party news outlet is reporting that a whistleblower said 21 million, 21 million less Chinese citizens used their cell phone over the last three months. That's a gaudy statistic that we have no way to confirm. I mean, that would be a lot. You need your cell phone for everything in China. 21 million people not using their cell phone. That would be crazy. I don't know how much that that stretches a little bit of credulity to me. But I just want to put out there to everybody, if indeed you also have a healthy skepticism of any number being reported out of China, well, you've got a friend in me, China Lion. You've got a friend in me, China Lion. You've got a friend who doesn't believe what she says. All right, everybody, uh, one more thing. Thank you for supporting this show. Uh, If you are in a situation, understand that these are uh, uh, dire, insane times. So I'm going to keep this short, considering I'm about to throw it to an interview about the Great Depression. Uh, But I only make my living from you. And I understand that many of you can't. uh, But those who can, those who continue, thank you. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Also, if you want a free way to help the show, uh, if if, uh, just not in the budget for you to help out financially, take this time, go on over to iTunes, any podcatcher you use, go ahead and uh, uh, leave a review. Five stars, please. And uh, uh, it, it, it tremendously helps this show as we continue to go forward in such uncertain times. Uh, but thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being awesome and stay safe. Our guest today is Stephen Kahn. He is the W.E. Smith Professor of History at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. You can check out his books, Americans Against the City, Anti-Urbanism in the 20th Century, and most recently, Nothing Succeeds Like Failure, The Sad History of American Business Schools. He's currently working on a book about the transformation of rural landscapes, and he joins us now. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me. Now, with everything that's going on right now, uh, this unprecedented sort of uh, a self-stoppage of the economy, these gaudy unemployment numbers that we saw yesterday, you can't help but start to think of the worst possible scenarios in terms of economic collapse. Uh, obviously, the Great Depression is what uh, most people immediately have come to mind, Uh But I guess this is where we will start. Uh, 
what is similar to the buildup to the Great Depression here and what is different? Yeah, I, I, let me start with the difference first. I, I think the speed with which this is all happening is it, there really is no precedent in American history. When uh, when the Great Depression started, uh, you know, we, we all think of the stock market collapse in October of 1929. But by the end of the year in 1929, unemployment, as best we could count it, was still under 5%. Um, by the end of 1930, it was up close to 9%. By the end of 1931, unemployment was, you know, pushing around 15%, 16%. By the time Franklin Roosevelt was inaugurated in, uh, in 1933, it was at 25%. Uh, that's nationally, if you, if you look to get uh, urban centers, the unemployment rate in 19, at the beginning of 1933 was much, much higher. But, but I guess what I'm saying is that the the drop off the cliff, while it was pretty calamitous, uh, didn't happen with the same kind of speed that we may be witnessing right now. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the going from an all-time low employment rate to, by by many, many, many factors, an all-time high is is definitely that yeah. that, that that is a whiplash that's, right. that's never been seen. That's right. That's right. Um, and at the you know, I think that the another of the major differences here is that there. Uh, what what the what the stock market crash revealed in 1929, it, it kind of pulled the curtain back on a lot of things that were already wrong with the economy, had been wrong for a long time, uh, particularly in rural America, where where that economy, the, especially the agricultural economy, hadn't really recovered from the First World War. But all across the 1920s, nobody really noticed because everything seemed to be so bright and gaudy and uh, and sparkly uh, across that decade that when the stock market crashed, then we saw, oh, dear, look, look at all the rest of the parts of the economy that are really quite sick already. And I'm not sure yet that we know uh, what this particular economic uh, uh, catastrophe is going to reveal about what's been going on, let's say, for the last four or five years. You know what, I mean? you know what I'm saying? Oh, it's, sure. It's not yeah. Clear yet. I, I, yeah, I think it's early to say what's what's going to reveal to be revealed as to have been uh in bad shape uh but we just didn't notice yeah the, the way i've been trying to think about it in my you know layman's brain is this is you know the stoppage is us kind of tearing up the carpets and taking a look at the floorboards and if the floorboards yep. are solid then we can probably just put down the carpet but if we realize that some of these things are termite infested and we were just kind of moving yep. along with it, then we have bigger problems that we're going to have to deal with. I think it's a great way to put it, uh, but that's right. But the contractor can't come to work just yet. Yes. Uh, so we're not going <laughs> to actually know um, what those floorboards are really look like. Uh, all right. Now, uh, one of the things that you've talked a lot about in the past is the difference between the, the city and rural reaction to the Great Depression, uh, what would yeah. be the 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 best way to start there? What would be the biggest, starkest difference? Yeah, so I think as I as I mentioned just a moment ago, um, when when Franklin Roosevelt uh, came to Washington uh, early in 1933, uh, rural America was already had been in a in a kind of crisis for at least a decade. And when I mean, primarily we're talking about the farm economy, um, and that's true whether you're talking about the farm economy in the South 
or the grain belt, uh, the Great Plains, and, and so forth, um, farm prices had reached uh, a peak during the First World War. They had collapsed after the First World War was over. They never really recovered. So people were already losing the farm, as it were, before the Great Depression hit. I think one of the things that's interesting to, to remember is that when, um, when FDR came into Washington, uh, he really, much of the New Deal, one could probably say a majority of the New Deal, the, the things we associate with the New Deal, the programs and whatnot, were designed to help rural America. Uh, yeah. He was much less interested in cities. I think that's both personally, but also at a level of policy. So while, yeah, so while he wanted to um, try to figure out how to restart all the urban factories, he was also really interested in ways that we could actually maybe move that industrial economy out of cities altogether and maybe start to decentralize the economy out of places like New York and Chicago and, and Philadelphia and Boston. Um, I, this, this was a big movement of which he, I think, was, a, was an important part in the 1930s. Let's see if we can revive rural America by decentralizing out of, out of big cities altogether. And, and that is a reaction to once the, the trickle of money stops coming out to the rural areas, that, that gets really desperate really fast as, as opposed to in cities where there might be a little bit more cushion because there's well, more jobs. Yeah, sure. Okay. But I actually think that this, this has to do more, more with a kind of set of cultural attitudes. Uh, I think that, that FDR was among many, many, many Americans who just didn't think cities were a good idea in the first place. Certainly oh. not the big cities that had appeared uh, in the 1920s. They're suspicious of cities for a whole host of reasons. I'm happy to, to rattle through them. Yeah, no, uh, go but ahead. I think that, that, well, I, I think... There are a couple of things, right, that Americans um, are suspicious. This is going to sound familiar. They're suspicious about some of the things that uh, American urban life represents, like diversity, uh, like foreignness. Uh, those big American cities had grown big in the early part of the 20th century, primarily because of immigration from places like Eastern and Southern Europe. Uh, there, there was an enormous backlash against that in the 1920s um, because those immigrants, you know, were, represented all kinds of things that a Protestant majority, a WASP majority didn't like. Catholics, Jews, yeah. uh, non-English speakers, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, so after those cities experienced that tremendous immigration up until the First World War, there's an enormous backlash against it. And, and cities, therefore, represent all of these things we don't like, we being kind of wasp-majority America. I think the other thing that cities represent is, um, let's call it a kind of collective uh, approach to, to, to life. Uh, that is to say, in order to get in, in order to live life in cities, in order to make life livable in cities, you need the role of government, whether it's the people who build the public transit systems or the, the, the uh, sewer systems, the gaslight systems, all that stuff. That's collective action. 
And that really rubbed people the wrong way who think that America's greatness lies in its, you know, pioneer rugged individualism. Now, that, of course, is its own mythology. But I think by the time you get to the Great Depression, there are numbers of people, and I actually think FDR is one of them, who believe that this is our moment to undo the urbanization of America and return to what we really are with, you know, that sort of 19th century mythology of, of homestead farmers and rugged individuals and, and pioneer uh, heroes and so on and so forth. So I think that's really why uh, we see a lot of what we see during the Great Depression. Who really felt the effects of the Depression first? Was, was it the cities or the rural areas? You know, um, it, I'm going to be embarrassed here, so you've got to, you, uh, <laughs> you okay. got to uh, help work, me out here. Work through now, it. There's one, one, of the, one of the great African-American authors, and I can't now remember whether it was Toni Morrison or I think it was Toni Morrison who, who said, you know, growing up in Stamps, Arkansas in the 1920s, we just thought the Depression was for white people like everything else because we were already in, <laughs> in a Depression. Um, so I think that, again, what you can um, what, what you can say is that what I think the people who felt the Great Depression maybe first and hardest were the people who did really well during the 1920s. So that's the urban middle class. Uh, they, they're the ones who dropped off the cliff. If you're a, you know, a, a, a tenant farmer, a sharecropper in uh, the Mississippi Delta, you know, the depression makes a bad situation worse, but it was already a bad situation. Yeah. Uh, I will say Maya Angelou looked it up. So we're, we're, we're good. Maya Angelou. Maya thank Angelou. You. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. No problem. Uh, uh, so, so this, this was a situation where. Uh, obviously you are a little bit more in a closed ecosystem, maybe in, in the rural areas, you're not as interconnected. Uh, do you think that that has the, that those same dynamics exist now, or is the interconnectivity of our entire world, uh, just going to make obviously a more interconnected domestic life? Yeah, I think that, uh, what we're going to see, uh, my, this is my prediction now, uh, is, is that rural people are going to have a much harder time coping uh, the longer that this goes on. And, and for a couple of reasons. Um, yeah, so it's easier to be um, isolated because lots of rural folks are already isolated in that sense. You know, life doesn't, doesn't change as dramatically as it's changing right now in New York City. At the same time, um, we've been talking for a while about the way rural Americans don't have access to the internet in, in anything like the way that uh, urban Americans do. So if life really is going to depend more and more on your access to broadband, uh, and that's everything from your job to your kid's school, then being out in some of these rural areas is going to get really hard really fast. At the same time, um, should you know, should rural areas start to see the same kinds of infection rates uh, that uh, that we're seeing and 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 growing and so forth right now, um, then the kinds of resources that are available to help people are already stretched thin in rural areas. Um, this is everything from social services to hospitals. Um, I mean, you know, we, we've been watching across 2019. Uh, there was a kind of repeated storyline about rural hospitals closing. 
especially in states where uh, governors, Republican governors, refuse to expand uh, Medicaid. Uh, so those hospitals are closing. Well, so if those if there just aren't as many hospital beds available, they're available at further distances and so on and so forth. That's going to uh, that's going to pose a real challenge for people uh, if they wind up uh, uh, with this infection. Yeah, you know, I, I, I just wonder whether or not there is a difference in that dynamic. I know there's certainly been a difference in terms of you know, the the social distancing, and this is, again, comes into some of the economic divide, at least that I've noticed anecdotally, that friends of mine that live further away from city centers uh, tend to be more uh, laissez-faire with their attitudes towards social distancing. Yeah. Because by I think and large... I think that's right. Yeah, they don't they don't see as many people, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm that's right. a, a borderline shut-in, and, and if I go <laughs> to the bar, <laughs> right. I'm seeing probably four times the amount of people that they would see just going yep. about running errands. Uh, yep. So I, I wonder how that goes from here, and, and more so to get back to the economics whether or not that shifts uh you know the a, a you know maybe people in the cities maybe people like me look at this and say eh, you want to know what maybe maybe the quiet country life isn't uh isn't so bad as long as i can still get postmates yep i i wonder that as well what we have seen um and again here's here's an an, an interesting analogy with uh, with the 1930s the 1920 census was the first census in American history that announced that a majority of Americans, more than 50 percent, lived in areas that were designated as urban by the by the census counters. Mm -hmm. In the 19, so so what that really meant was that basically from every you know from 1790 through 1920, uh, urban areas continued to grow. Uh, that was just, you know, a long-term trend in American history. That's where the arrows were pointing. That took a brief pause in the 1930s. Uh, cities did not grow. Uh, urban areas, metropolitan areas did not grow in the 1930s the way they had been across, again, you know, like 130 years of American history. It certainly did pick up again uh, after World War II. Metropolitan areas continued to grow. Urban areas uh, were, were in retreat again in terms of population. So I wonder if one uh, at least immediate result of this might be, yeah, let's yeah, let's leave Brooklyn. Uh, the prices are too high here anyway, and let's go someplace else. You know, as a reaction to the to the uh, right that feeling of being shut in, shut yeah. up, shut in, uh, and too crowded. Um, but, you know, as I said, the long term trend in American history is towards this kind of hyper metropolitanization. That's an ugly word uh, of the population. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that certainly, you know, has even is it is it true that that, that that's even kind of jumped even more dramatically recently over the last like five to ten oh, years? Yeah. So here's my favorite little bit of political trivia about the 2016 election. Donald Trump won 2,500 counties uh, out of a total of about 3,000, give or take. Yeah. Hillary Clinton won about 450 counties. <laughs> she won. She she won a three million vote majority. Yeah. And those 450 counties accounted in 2016 for roughly two thirds of the American GDP. 
So Donald Trump won the places where nobody lives and where the economy doesn't amount to much. And uh, and so, right. So that that trend of kind of hyper uh, urbanization, hyper metropolitanization uh, has certainly been going on in the 21st century, whether that comes to a halt right now, uh, whether it comes to a temporary halt, picks up again. Boy, I don't know if I if I could give you that answer, you know, <laughs> I, I I could be like Richard Burr and make a killing on the stock market. Sure. Uh, so, jeez. Oh, uh, yeah. All right. So, so let's, let's get into some of the, the, uh, what I'm sure a lot of people would, you know, have asked you or, or, uh, are thinking about listening to this. If we are looking for signs that our world now looks a lot more like the world right before the great depression or leading into the great depression, what signs are we looking for? Well, I think one of the things to look for is the way the federal government and and then uh, responds to the uh, to the crisis. So so let me take two steps back. One of the things that uh, made the Great Depression as great as it was uh, was that uh, Herbert Hoover uh, really dug his heels in, and the and the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve dug their collective heels in and had exactly the wrong kind of response to to all the the indications, all the indicators, all the all, all the metrics, and so forth. So so you want to watch the way the the federal government responds. So two trillion dollars, uh, which is what we're about to throw at the economy, is a very different kind of response than Herbert Hoover had in 1930. Uh, and and you know so I think. Uh, that's going to ease people's anxieties about this. Basically, what happened to people who were losing their jobs in the early years of the Great Depression was that the federal government abandoned them. Uh, and, and that was really a kind of moral principle on Hoover's part. He did not believe that the federal government should be giving money directly to people. Uh, and, well, as a result, you know, Herbert Hoover <laughs> wound up as one of the most hated men in American political history. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think what's happening um, right now in Washington is an indication that people recognize that, right, that the federal government has to take some kind of economic leadership here. The big question, of course, is whether $2 trillion is not enough, too much, just right, and we're not going to know that for probably six months. Um and in six months, if we uh, come out of all of this, um, then, yeah, we will be able to evaluate this. The other federal response that I would that I would point to, right, it, it goes back to um, to FDR's inaugural address in 1933. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I think one of the things that FDR understood was that this was not just an economic problem. The Great Depression. Yeah. And what he was quite brilliant at doing was communicating directly with the American people to reassure them that we were going to get through this yeah. fear itself. Right. That's what we have to fear. Uh, you know, I got to say that 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 the, the messaging, as we say, from the White House has not uh, has not been FDR like thus far. And <laughs> well, so sorry. insofar as is what we it, insofar as what we need is that kind of federal leadership, we're not getting it. Uh, so, right, so Congress has stepped up to the plate. Whether it works or not, right, I, I won't, I, I'm not in a position to predict, but 
insofar as what we need is is other kinds of national leadership, um, we're not getting it. So somebody like my governor, Mike DeWine, uh, turns out to be a kind of national leader in the absence, in the void that has been left uh, from the White House. So, so you would say, all right. So, so those the number one, uh, at least at, at least for now, uh, the first decision gate is cleared in that uh, we're not going to take a totally heartless federal government approach toward the people. That's right. And and for exactly uh, 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 for those of you who are are unaware, you know, homeless encampments even now are sometimes referred to as Hoovervilles because of the That's personal right. animosity <laughs> that people felt That's toward right. Herbert Hoover as a president. Uh, uh, so- Herbert, Herbert Hoover, Hoover Hoover's name was the only thing that made my now deceased grandmother curse. Uh, really? You, you know, she was a very sweet woman, but her family lost everything uh, during the Great Depression. And so if you mention Herbert Hoover, she would she would say nasty words. Uh, wow. Words. Uh, so exactly. Uh, 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 so then, uh, all right, uh, uh, there, there being some kind of, uh, you know, leadership, uh, uh, void, that was something that was obviously a big difference between Hoover and FDR in terms of the recovery. Are, are there any other kind of like, like hard indicators, like a, a falling price of something or, or if, if you see mm. real estate dip below a certain level? You know, that's a, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's probably beyond my pay grade. Uh, okay. I, I would I would say uh, it's it's probably too early to say, look, if the price of real estate in uh, in Park Slope, Brooklyn starts to drop, then we know there's a major uh, a change ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not I'm not sure I'm I'm qualified to 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 make those kinds of predictions. And, and, and to be honest, it's probably an unfair question because nothing's like this. We've never voluntarily yeah, turned the economy off right. before, right? Like, right. like that, that is, that's that is right. something that is rare <laughs> for us to just take a bull market uh, behind the barn and shoot it in the head and hope it re reincarnates. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and yet at the same time, uh, you know, it's a kind of, it was an old, that, that old, uh, that old commercial for a, for a car repair uh, shop, either pay me now or you pay me later. Yeah. If we didn't oh, yeah. do this, right? Uh, we, it's not as if this was going to go away. Uh, it's gonna. We, we, we're, we really are just making this up as we go along. Certainly, you know, we we because uh, even internationally, you know, there were there were brief flashes of uh, you know the United Kingdom government that was flirting with the idea of doing a herd immunity situation where right, everybody exactly. would get it. Uh, but, and, and now, and now Boris Johnson's infected. So, yeah. so there we are. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but, but no, they, you know, even, even, the... even they backed away from it. So it's like, it's not like there's That's really, right. I mean, obviously we don't exactly know what happened in China. We don't exactly know what's happening in Iran, but other than that, like everybody effectively is kind of doing some version of the same stay at home, close yep. down the bars, close right. down the businesses. That's right. Yeah, uh, you know, one of the things, one of the questions I that 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 I am interested in is whether this is going to restore at least a little bit our uh, reliance on genuine expertise, uh, because one of you know it, it, here in Ohio, and I think Ohio has actually been out in front. Um, the, the the real hero here is uh, the governor's uh, director of uh, of health, uh, Dr. Amy Acton, who is a genuine public health expert. And by God, he listens to her. Uh, and she says, you need this, this and this. And he says, OK, we're going to do this, that and that. 
that has been, you know, we've seen this slow erosion of our faith in science, of our of our reliance on scientific expertise, and I, I hope maybe this will restore some of that because it's going to turn out, yeah, actually, it's not a partisan conspiracy. It's it's actual science stuff that we need to know and listen to. <laughs> Can I ask you about that real quick? Because I have a a, a theory, and, and part of it is because we now have access to more information than we've ever had before. But I, I do think that there is, there's, there's simply a human, uh, a human tendency to gravitate toward our own confirmation bias, right? Oh, sure. And and in a world with infinite information. You're always going to be able to cobble together via your own confirmation bias, your own worldview. And oftentimes that is outside what, you know, we would understand as uh, our, our scientific understandings of things. But I don't know how that reverses. I don't know how, uh, uh, you know, that, you know, we, we now say, OK, well, well, let's try to listen as much as we can to what our our most up-to-date scientific understanding is when there is so much out there. And and then also, counter to that, I don't know if we're better or worse because I could certainly make the argument that maybe we're better that it's a little bit more chaotic, but yet when things go wrong, there will always be a louder dissenting voice than there would have been before when we had many more yep. gatekeepers and fewer clearinghouses of information. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in, in some, basically you, you're, I'm also wondering how you set the reset button on this because, uh, at the end of the day, we can, uh, we, we can agree to disagree on a whole host of things, but I'm still one of those old fashioned people who believes that in the realm of science, science isn't subject to the democratic process. Uh, that is to say the COVID virus doesn't really care whether you believe in it or not, sure. uh, or whether you, you get to vote on it or not. You know, there aren't two sides to this question. Yeah. So I, 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 I have wondered how we get back to, um, well, you, you, you know, it was, uh, um, um, oh God, the old New York Senator, uh, uh who Moynihan? said famously, you don't, so, yeah, exactly. Uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you you can have your own opinions, but you can't have your own facts. Well, that yeah. seems that seems really quaint now. Uh, but this, but I, but maybe this is a crisis large enough and deep enough that we do get to hit a reset button and say, actually, okay, so there really are facts that you, you need to you need to reckon with. What you do about them becomes. Uh, something we can debate, but you don't deny anymore that these are. Uh, facts on the ground. Yeah. I, I do wonder. I wonder alongside you because uh, yeah. I, I, I think that the the internet has given us, which is still, you know, realistically in its infancy, although it obviously has affected our lives so dramatically that we feel like it's old growth at this point. But uh, there there is a reordering of information that I think is profound. And, and hopefully crises like this if there is a silver lining it is that we will find the the message that cuts through to the broadest amount of people because obviously yeah. it's it's a matter of life and death and also uh 
you know, we've spent most of this talking about the economics of this crisis and and whether or not we are looking at a absolute worst case scenario. But people do need to understand for even, you know, forget the markets. I think everybody tends to fixate on on the Dow. But but even if you're a small business right now out there in, in Ohio where you oh, are, yeah. you got to you got to forecast Absolutely. out six months a year and right. uncertainty makes that impossible. So, yeah, I, I think that's that's exactly right. Um, I think this is a moment where, you know, you do have to do what the best experts are telling you, even if, um, uh, you know, even if it isn't perfect or it isn't entirely persuasive to you, uh, this is, this is a moment for a kind of social solidarity that we haven't needed for a very long time. And I kind of wonder whether those muscles have kind of atrophied for us as Americans. It, this is really one of the most remarkable crises that does meet its moment in a weird way, because mm -hmm. I still don't feel like, and we're doing this interview, it's going to come out the same day we do it, but, but March 27th, we are now weeks into quarantine for some cities. Uh, the yep. global economy has stopped. Uh, there are, yep. are hundreds uh, or thousands now dead. Um, and yet I still kind of feel like we're not in a situation that we were in with 9-11 or we were in with uh, even like, you know, the, the, the Oklahoma City bombing where there's a traumatic moment and we all understand that life is different now. Right. And, yeah. and, and we we look to our neighbor and we feel empathy for them and and now right. we move on uh we can build a new society and of course we're going to find little things to fight about and the old wounds never really heal but at least for that moment we realize all right let's we need to smarten up and just get in a line now to survive it and then we can start arguing with each other i don't think we ever really got there <laughs> i don't think we're, yeah. we're i don't think we're still there now i'm not i'm not sure we're there yet either and and you know this is where again um, the, the, there has been an absence of national leadership on this, right? This this is not the messaging that we are getting uh, from Washington, and uh, and I think you know when I think about what my successor a hundred years from now is going to notice about this moment, that is certainly going to be part of it. Uh, and again, so I I already made the analogy to FDR being able to communicate not to the economic fears of people, but to the much deeper psychological dramas that people were engaged in uh, and speaking to people to calm them down, to restore their, uh, their confidence uh, at a moment when that confidence had really been uh, uh, challenged. And, and I think that's, that's not what's happening right now uh, across a wide uh, swath of, of the public. Uh, we just don't feel that right now. We, it's, it's a lot of uncertainty. It's a lot of uh, mixed messaging. Because uh, again, in the absence of a national response, what we have is, uh, is, is 50 different responses to this. The governor of Ohio does one thing, but the governor of Pennsylvania is doing something kind of different. Uh, the governor of Illinois is, is saying one thing, but the governor of uh, Indiana is saying something else. And that just creates a kind of confusion in which uh, a lot of uncertainty then grows because uh, because we don't have a unity to all of this. 
Well, my guest has been Stephen Kahn. He is the W.E. Smith Professor of History at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Please go check out his books, Americans Against the City, Anti-Urbanism in the 20th Century, and more recently, Nothing Nothing Succeeds Like Failure, The Sad History of American Business School. Sorry, did I get something wrong there? No, no, I was just going to say it's a great time to catch up on your reading. So, oh, yeah. You know, uh, so so please check the books out. A hundred percent. And also, uh, uh, I'll tell you what, I'm sure it's a great time to, to continue uh, your, your writing and editing because you're currently working on a book That's, on the transformation it, exactly. of rural landscapes. Uh, well, uh, Stephen, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation and uh, uh, please pleasure. stay safe. Yeah, you too. And uh, and thanks again for having me. And that will wrap it up for you guys today. I want to thank our Titanic $10 tier, Dennis Brad, Nomadic Craig, you boy. Robert, Olin and Angela, Dustin, Richard, Kilowatt, Darren, Daily Tech News Show, Milk Leg Scoop, Jay Milius, Paul, Jonathan, The Jen, Nicholas, Adam, Zach, Chad, Andrew, Peter, Nick, Frozen, Jim, DL, Lindsay, Steven, Adam, D. Laser, and Middles, H, Mike. You want to be a part of them? Head on over. Take politics seriously. Dot com. You want to get in touch with me? Do it on social media at Justin R. Young on Instagram and Twitter. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying that some shows talk about politics. Still more, they talk about politics. And I saw one the other day that dared to speak about politics. And yet, this is the only program with the Babylons to talk about all Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>